Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong. And I'm Nathan Taylor. Welcome to ArtsLink on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary on Treaty 7 lands and Métis Region 3. So what do you have for us this month, Nathan? Well, Jenny, for this June episode, I'm going to be talking a little bit and showing some interesting clips from the life and work of Rod Serling, creator of The Twilight Zone. I have an interview with community advocate Fong Lang Famo to talk about historical places days and the collection of resources she has made available on the website about Calgary Chinatown. Hi, Fong I first met you on campus several years ago, but this is the first time I've actually had you on the show, so welcome. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was back in TFDL in my old office. Yeah, and I guess today we're talking about the historical places uh, days, the, which is uh, will be here soon in July. And so I guess talk about uh, what the historical places days are. Well, it's a two week long event that profiles and promotes historic places from coast to coast. It's, um, it's, it's a platform that you know, gives us as registered users a place to um, talk about our, uh, you know, our heritage places of interest uh, to increase visitation to these places, right? And, and uh, this campaign, um, this, uh, the host is actually the national, um, what is that called? Um, uh, National Trust for Canada, right? That's the host for this platform. And uh, so it's it's a campaign to increase visitation during about three weeks in July every year. And so it's a nationwide, nationwide marketing campaign, if you will. And so how did you get involved with it? Well, I think I first saw it like in um, on social media and uh, it talked about, oh, you know, we can sign up and build our site on using their platform historic places days platform and they also offer a selfie contest so it's something they do every year so i think that both those things kind of got me interested and i started poking around on their site and of course it's um those tools are all free so anyone can register sign up um, their places of interest and build these um, virtual sites to talk about, um, you know, their significant heritage uh, places. And you were uh, particularly interested in documenting the Canton block in Calgary's Chinatown. So can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting. I was trying to talk about the Chinese community and Chinatown and, and all these different things. But the way the site, the website is built, we have to tag it to a physical place, like a heritage place. Well, the only heritage buildings really that exist in Chinatown is the Canton block. And a little bit um, beside it would be the Holem block, right? There are not too many buildings left. And none of those are, by the way, are, are designated heritage sites. They're not legally protected in any way but i was able to use canton block as an example and and that's why you know i built it all around uh, even though the the naming is called canton block 
I'm talking about the community. I'm talking about, you know, not just physical places. And, and of course, the significance is uh, of the Canton Block. It is the third Chinatown in Calgary. And it's been thriving since 1910 when, when this block was built. So the first and second Chinatown are no longer around. And there are also no traces of those Chinatowns. I'm hoping by creating, um, sharing this information, there's um, we can save more, not just the physical building, but more of the, the background story, the history, the heritage behind these places. That's what's really interesting. Okay. And I guess, um, uh, what are the other areas in Chinatown you're interested in kind of talking about and leading uh, folks to visit on your own on their own in on the uh, website, I guess? Well, what I've done is i've I've created what they call visit list. That's a a tool within the uh, historic places day platform and also events. Now, they in my mind i wanted to create places for the so-called the intangibles so they're not um they're not actual buildings i'm not talking about more buildings in chinatown i mean lots of other people can talk about uh, i don't know the cultural center the elderly citizens association the park and so on i i i am not specifically talking about that it's because i i've already I, there are plenty of other people doing that, right? So I'm talking about the intangibles. Like, for example, I talk about the art walk, taking people to the utility box stories. I talk about the recent culture and kin exhibit at Fort Calgary, but it connects to Chinatown. It's an exhibit. Um, I talk about Mayor Gondak commemorating the 100-year anniversary of the Chinese Exclusion Act, I talk about, let's say, an essay that I wrote that talks about the Exclusion Act. Um, there's also uh, a post about the Chinatown Redevelopment Plan, uh, about um, the exhibit that was a temporary exhibit that was at Harmony Park. And so there's lots and lots of bells and whistles that I put in there. And of course, I would want to promote local events, for example, the the street fest the chinatown street festival um that happens around august every year i promoted it last year as well as i'm talking about the upcoming one so there's all kinds of stuff like there's even the reflective urbanism mapping of the calgary chinatown and so there's all kinds of interesting maps um a lots of information like the chinatown cultural plan uh, the Chinatown memory book. So there's all the things, all the intangibles that don't really fit in uh, and, and associate with a particular building, but they're all there, right? And so that's uh, that's what I'm collecting. But I, I, if I may, I also want to talk about um, an archives that I am initiating. It's a collection of um, Chinese community memories and it is for that very reason I'm building this archive. And, and this will be housed at the city of Calgary. So it's a professional archives and it's the very first time anyone has initiated a collection um, of um, Chinese community history. 
So if anyone's interested in contributing to the archives, to the collection, please let me know. Um, you could connect with me, I, I think, through the radio show, and Jeannie would be able to um, make that connection. Yeah. And I guess, um, I guess talk more about the Chinese Exclusion Act, which will uh, mark its 100th anniversary on June or July 1st on Canada that day. Yeah. Yeah, this happened on July 1st, 100 years ago. It was the, the first group, I mean, the Chinese is the first and only group that was excluded by race. So prior to the Exclusion Act, um, the head tax was already in place. So the Chinese were paying uh, $500, and which I understand could mean like up to two years wages at the time um, to enter Canada. But by, you know, 1923, even the head tax was not enough to curb the inflow of um, Chinese pioneers. And so the, the government at the time established the, what they call the Chinese Immigration Act of 1923. So it basically stopped all immigration. So even though, let's say you would have family, uh, spouse or children overseas, you could not bring them, uh, bring them to this country. So this was a, um, it wasn't something that just happened for that year, nor something that just happened for a few years. It went on for at, legally for over a couple of decades. Um, it was repealed in the 1940s. However, the um, the ramifications were vast. People were not, even though it was repealed, let's say 1947, roughly around there, um, it doesn't mean the families were reunited at the time. It took another, at least a couple more decades in the 60s when immigration laws were changed, when race was removed from the equation, when, when uh, you know, you weren't admitted based on your the color of your skin. That's when the um, families were beginning to be united. But you you can uh, imagine a lot of this already uh, created great harm because these families were not even created during those decades, right? So there were no people to reunite at, for, for a lot of folks. Um, this would have impacted many generations that came after and and of course the families that never were because these families were never formed uh important uh anniversary to acknowledge after 100 years yeah uh, yes we're observing that and and yes I'm, I'm really honored that the mayor was um uh participated in the uh proclamation and also um created this video that can be shared. And I guess uh, back to the historical places days, um, after three years of being involved with this program, how do you see um, visitors to the website use the information there? You know, um, I, I wish I had more details about that because the analytics, and that's something I actually brought up um, yesterday at a webinar with uh, historic places days, uh, the analytics for individual users, like for individuals, um, 
site registrants, and that's what I am, are not available. Like I can, I, I think I'm able to make a special request. What they're collecting is kind of global analytics for the entire, for all users, for the entire site. So I, I wish I knew, but like I, I want to just raise awareness, get people interested um, about these different topics um, and also learn about, you know, not just the brick and mortar, but learn about the the background stories and, and about the Chinese community. All right. Um, I guess uh, that's about the end of the interview. Anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? Um, I, well, I'm just hoping people will get um, to visit the site, you know, get to know about Chinatown or Chinese heritage um, in Canada. And, you know, for me, it was about raising awareness and having fun while doing it. And, and I'm hoping that the visitors to the virtual site uh, would, you know, are enjoying it as much as I am. So um, thanks again, Jeannie, for having me. Thank you very much. And that was my interview with Feng Ling Feimo, whom I know from serving on the Calgary Chinatown Advisory Board for the last couple of years. And so Historical Places Day is from July 8th to the 23rd, 2023. Visit the website by Googling Historical Places Days, Calgary Chinatown, and you'll see the page with the Chinese title, Ka Sing and English name, Calgary Chinatown, all in one line. You're listening to ArtsLink on CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting out of the University of Calgary. Well, for my section this month on the show, I'm going to talk a little bit about Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone. I guess to start off, I'm surprised that this isn't anything that's been on my radar before. I mean, uh, I guess... I did poo-poo the Twilight Zone to some extent, uh, possibly blaming The Simpsons a little bit for the pop culture saturation that I've had. I just felt like through osmosis, I'd already seen a lot of these twists and the tropes, you know, were stuff that basically you knew when you were 10 years old. Well, folks, I'm here to say that after so many years of avoiding this television show, I finally got the first season from 1959 and 1960, and it is just blowing my mind. And I just want to spend a couple minutes talking about it, showing you some clips of the work of Rod Serling and The Twilight Zone to hopefully have you seek it out yourself. I do generally like to talk about things that you can find online streaming for free. Uh, this one I've not been able to find anywhere, so uh, don't worry. We'll be talking about some free stuff that you can watch at the end of the show, so stay tuned. And now, Mr. Serling. Next week on The Twilight Zone, we put you on a front porch. Summer evening, tree-lined street, typical small town. And then we pull the rug out from under your feet, and we throw a nightmare at you. Claude Aiken, Jack Weston, and Barry Atwater are your neighbors just at that moment when the monsters are due on Maple Street. Don't chicken out. See you next week. Can't you just imagine Mr. Serling's snaggletooth grin as he basically dares you to tune in next week to his little nightmare that he's concocted for you? I definitely very much appreciate Rod Serling's use of the second-person narration, which I'm going to play a quick clip of from uh, I Shot an Arrow Into the Air. This is a story of a crashed group of astronauts, and one of them uh, has finally killed the rest of his buddies for their water as they are trapped uh, on some sort of desert-like planet. No. 
Now you make tracks, Mr. Corey. You move out and up like some kind of ghostly billy club was tapping at your ankles and telling you that it was later than you think. You scrabble up rock hills and feel hot sand underneath your feet, and every now and then, take a look over your shoulder at a giant sun suspended in a dead and motionless sky, like an unblinking eye that probes at the back of your head in a prolonged accusation. Mr. Corey, last remaining member of a doomed crew, keep moving. Make tracks, Mr. Corey. Push up and push out, because if you stop, if you stop, maybe sanity will get you by the throat. Maybe realization will pry open your mind and the horror you left down in the sand will seep in. Yeah, Mr. Corey, yeah, you better keep moving. That's the order of the moment. Keep moving. This style really reminds me of the work of Harvey Kurtzman uh, in the old EC Comics Two-Fisted Tales and Frontline Combat stories that were equally as brutal in their narration depicting second-person events. Delving a little bit into the history of Rod Serling, I found one particularly brutal factoid that uh, I'm going to let Paul F. Tompkins and uh, John Ross Bowie from the Dead Authors podcast describe for you. While you were in um, uh, uh, the service, you saw... I do apologize. I do apologize. Are you, oh, are you apologizing speaking, for laughing about Melvin? Well, I was... I, You're laughing about Melvin. I wasn't laughing about Melvin, but I was laughing at the same time as I was thinking about Melvin. <laughs> um, You'll understand in a moment why this is the worst thing he's ever done. So a, fellow, a fellow private, Melvin Levy. Melvin Levy was another loquacious Jew who was serving in the Philippines with me. 1959. This is how we spoke. Melvin was uh, up in front of a palm funny, tree. Funny chap. Funny, funny chap. chap funny, funny chap. And uh, would uh, stand up there in front of the palm tree and could recite radio plays much like I could verbatim. It was an uncanny skill. And he's up there doing, I don't remember what it was. I the say, I, say I, I do apologize for interrupting. Do you think this recitation of radio plays was a sort of virus that was going around at the time? <laughs> that so many people were doing it? Three channels. <laughs> A 45-minute tri trip to three hours. Yes, as a matter of fact, it was, it was viral. The, uh, Pray continue. I do apologize. Uh, Melvin's up there, and he's uh, entertaining everybody. Everybody really enjoyed Melvin. Melvin was uh, much less confrontational than I was, a uh, far nicer guy. Uh, he was just a loquacious Jew. Just a loquacious Jew, and he was doing this entire routine from memory under a palm tree. It's a peaceful day. We're not going to be called into battle for a little while. There's a beautiful food cargo plane coming in over the horizon. That means we're going to eat soon. Cargo plane dumps its cargo. It neatly beheads Melvin. True story twist. <laughs> Look it up. I don't know that there's so much anyway, of a twist. Anyway, show business. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not a twist. Guy's doing a comedy routine and is beheaded by food. Well, there's no... It's That's not a twist. Maybe it isn't set up. Maybe it isn't organic, it's, it's, but it's a twist. It's unexpected. I'll grant you, it is unexpected. In researching Rod Serling's life, aside from his war experiences, he also had a lot of trouble with censorship, and I thought was a very eloquent speaker on the subject. So I want to play for you a, a clip from 60 Minutes, where he's talking to Mike Wallace about pre-censorship. Paddy Chayefsky has talked about the insidious influence of what he calls pre-censorship. How does that work? Uh, pre-censorship is a practice, I think, of most television writers. I can't speak for all of them. This is the prior knowledge of the writer of those areas which are difficult to try to get through. 
And so a writer will shy away from writing those things which he knows he's going to have trouble with on the sponsorial or an agency level. We practice it all the time. We just do not write those themes which, you know are going, which we know are going to get into trouble. Who's the culprit? Is it the network, the sponsor? It sure is not the FCC. No, it's certainly not the FCC, ideally speaking, of course. It's a combination of culprits in this case, Mike. It's partly network. It's principally agency and sponsor. In many ways, I think it's the audience themselves. How do you mean? Well, I'll give you an example. About a year ago, roughly 11 or 12 months ago, on the Lassie show, this is a story usually told by Sheldon Leonard, who was then associated with the show. Lassie was having puppies. And I have two little girls, then age five and three, who are greatly enamored of this beautiful collie. Mm -hmm. And they watched the show with great interest. And Lassie gave birth to puppies. And Mike, it was probably one of the most tasteful and delightful and warm things uh, depicting what is this, this, this wondrous thing that is birth. And after the show, I, I think there were many congratulations all around because it was a lovely show. The sort of thing I'd love my kids to watch to show them what is the birth process and how marvelous it is. They got many, many cards and letters. Sample card from the Deep South, this was. If I wanted my kids to watch sex shows, I wouldn't have had them turn on that. I could take them to burlesque shows. And as a result of the influx of mail, many of the cards, incidentally, as Sheldon tells it, were postmarked at identical moments, all in the same handwriting, but each was counted as a singular piece of mail. And as a result, the directive went down that there would be no shows having anything to do with puppies, that is, in the actual birth process. Well, obviously, it is this wild lunatic fringe of letter writers that, that greatly affect what the sponsor has in mind. I uh, watched that Lassie episode just to see what the fuss was about. And man, yeah, the crazies have always been like that, it seems. For those of you who are interested in pursuing this further, the uh, author and uh, comedian historian Cliff Nesteroff has been posting all sorts of uh, viewer mail complaining about uh, the perversions and, uh, you know, commies to be found in shows like MASH, The Monkees, The Dick Van Dyke Show, and The Facts of Life. It's really quite breathtaking, and it leads us to the centerpiece of my experience with uh, The Twilight Zone, the aforementioned... The monsters are due on Maple Street. This is the first episode I was familiar with. The aliens go from town to town and watch as what little nudging they give the hapless humans snowballs into insanity. Of course, being a 30-minute television program with commercial breaks, the formerly friendly neighbors turn on each other fairly quickly, but it's the details within that give it a real sense of danger to me. For one thing, watch Barry Atwater's pushback against the gathering mob, watch his mannerisms that the mob finds suspicious, even watch his hands. He has insomnia and looks up at the night sky sometimes. Suspicious? Some people are starting to believe so, but he's not backing down quietly, and so a nervous peace hangs over the neighborhood. Finally, when the inimitable Jack Weston as Charlie accidentally on purpose blows away a good Samaritan, the mob finally turns on him as he is chased to the steps of his house and we see shots of pursuers' hands picking up rocks, the sounds of smashing followed by the visceral shock of Charlie holding his bleeding scalp. The pause in the disaster. What will happen next? Will they regain their senses? Here's what happens. I know who it is! I know who the monster is! I know who it is that doesn't belong among us! 
I swear I know who it is. All right, Charlie, let's hear it. What are you waiting for? Well, come on, Charlie, come on. Who is it, Charlie? Tell us. It's a kid. It's Tommy. He's the one. Oh, that's not true. It isn't so. He's a little boy. It was this kid who knew what was going to happen. He was the one who knew. How did he know? How could he have known? Make How did you know, Tommy? What's the matter with you people now? Stop! How did you know? How did you And that's what really got me, folks, because in the end, there are some people that push back and have to find the next weaker target, and it seems to be the kids. So what I found really scary, especially, was uh, the sound effect towards the end of that clip where they say, don't let him get to the house. And after that, the show deteriorates into a series of frenetic quick shots. You know, we see a hunting rifle on a wall briefly. Then a couple of shots later, we see a man grab it. We see someone pulling a hammer off the Good Samaritan's dead body because he was a workman to go to work on the crowd. Uh, we see a, a, a revolver shot point blank into the camera. We see a woman screaming, no, don't. Um, and an amazing pullback shot. It just keeps going back and back and back as all these people are wandering around, running around the streets, screaming and uh, killing each other. I'll leave you with Rod Serling's final words on this episode, and then we'll have some fun after that. The tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. For the record, prejudices can kill, and suspicion can destroy, and a thoughtless, frightened search for a scapegoat has a fallout all of its own, for the children and the children yet unborn. And the pity of it is that these things cannot be confined to the Twilight Zone. To end the show on a lighter note, I noticed over at the Internet Archive at archive.org, now you can watch every single episode of Columbo. Thanks for tuning in this month. We'll talk to you folks again on the next ArtsLink episode on July 24th.